0: Hi there everyone and welcome to this second season 2 special of our interview with Sam from Crywolf Podcast. In the first special that we did with Sam we talked a lot about Game of Thrones and feelings and we talked a lot about her history and her love for the show. In the second half of this interview we are going to do a huge discussion about season 8 and there are also spoilers for basically every season of the show, so if you haven't seen all of Game of Thrones, you are going to be so spoiled and so annoyed by the end of this if you listen to all of it, so I would advise that if you do want to listen to this episode, then go ahead and watch all eight seasons of Game of Thrones and then come back to hear what we have to say. This is basically all season eight discussion, I can't warn you any more than that. So please, sit back, enjoy, and again, if you haven't seen Season 8 yet, just don't listen to this, please, because you're just going to spoil yourself. This was a weird time in my life. (laughs) I don't know if it was a weird time in your life, but um, that... um, I have a friend who is very much into Star Wars, and he said that before The Force Awakens was released in 2015, he said he had built it up so much in his head that he said if it was rubbish, he may never have emotionally recovered from if he hadn't have liked it. And thankfully, he did, and so you know we're all fine there. But. I about 2 weeks before the premiere I did have to tell myself as I said before I said this is just going to be a, a regular premiere where it's lots of table setting lots of characters going hey I know you from this episode and hey I know you from this episode let's not get too far into it but it just couldn't I I'd built it up so much in my head and like I when I initially found Game of Thrones I was um like in 2015, I was not in a good place. There are a lot of people now who are currently experiencing what I experienced at the time. At the moment, it's got a name called Long COVID. And back then, it was just known as good old post-viral fatigue syndrome. And, And if it went on any longer than six months, it was then officially classed as chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis. And I spent the last half of 2016 2014 and the first half of 2015 in bed basically yeah. uh, i was still going to university lectures and kind of just sitting there getting my degree and then um and then i you know i kind of recovered and by the time i got into game of thrones season 6 and 7 i was like you know i was watching it on the sofa then um but then around sort of christmas 2018 and then early 2019 i was going through a bad spell with it again um, so about eighteen months ago and I had been seeing um a therapist for a little while and I think it was sort of February, March time, um, so before uh, season eight had actually come out. And um I remember being sat in with um a therapist and we had this kind of conversation that at the end of it, as I was about to leave, she just sort of said, Um, are you sure you want me to let you leave? I feel I'm a bit worried if we leave the room because the conversation we've been having was not a very happy one. She was sort of saying that, um, you know, you want me to get in touch with your family? And I said, no, no. I said, you know, this week's yet for the, and I want to see the end of Game of Thrones. So, you know, like, you know, there's no, there's no immediate panic there. And she <laughs> kind of looked at me and went, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, oh so, God, I
1: love it. It's awful.
0: <laughs> I know it's, but she didn't get it. Um, yeah. But I was um, really lucky
1: that my therapist um, was a really big Game of Thrones fan. And ah, so, okay. yeah, she would often be like, she would often use it to kind of bring things up in saying, uh, you know, well, this happened this week to this character. How did that, like, how did that sit with you afterwards? Did that affect this at all? And it was pretty interesting.
0: Well, um, before we go massively deep into um, season eight, is that how you were able to kind of realize that you had quite a strong connection with John through therapy stuff?
1: A hundred percent. It's actually, um, so, and then I'm, I'm at some point I know that I need to let somebody interview me about John, um, and that's what it's, it's gearing up to, and I don't know that I'm emotionally ready for it. Um, it'll probably be my best friend, Lindsay, because she understands um, a lot of it, since she knows me so well. Um, but yeah, it was honestly the other way around of, like, um, me loving Jon Snow, was a lot, of the, um, a lot of the inspiration for me going back to therapy. Like when I, I went to therapy um, for like the third time when I was 29, 30, would um, that have made sense four years ago. That would have been around season six, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, 2016.
1: Yeah, it was honestly like post Winds of Winter stuff that I was like, fuck, I need to go to therapy. Uh, and I was like in a good place. But I think that, yeah, seeing John um, overcome uh, his own difficulties and, and like, kind of accepting this sense of worth and and figuring out a purpose for himself, um, there were a lot of things that made me realize that, like, I was so, so personally and, like, deeply moved by it that I, I really recognized that there was way, way more to it than just me really liking fucking Jon Snow, you know, like of course there was more to it than that. And, um, and I was in a good place in my life, uh, like relatively. Um, but you know, working a job that I didn't care about and, you know, there were definitely like past traumas that I hadn't fully tidied up and stuff like that. And so that was a big decision to go back to therapy and, um, in part to figure out what I wanted to do, um, in the larger scale, you know, I ended up quitting my job and, and going to grad school, um, and beginning, you know, the process of becoming a clinical psychologist and, and all of that. Um, and it, a lot of that was in part, um, thanks to, thanks to good old John Snow. Um, and I had met, you know, honestly, uh, like my, my relationship with Lindsay, um, with, with, uh, Paula Fairfield and with Kate Dickey were, were like hugely instrumental in that too, because they're three of like you know and and my friend christine kippins like the four of them honestly are like so incredibly powerful and supportive um and i met all of them through game of thrones um and and you know they were they were so encouraging uh, for me to do those things so game of thrones legitimately changed my life maybe not you know not all directly in just being like i really love game of thrones and i could talk about game of thrones all the time but in the fact that it Inadvertently has introduced me to so many people who have changed my life and and helped me realize a lot of things about myself that I really needed to work on and a lot of that was through my like reflection in, in John and his experience.
0: Cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, um, John, <laughs> John is a way into season eight really because, like everything else in season eight, John's storyline was a point of contention in the, <laughs> uh, the fan base. Um. So I mainly just want to ask, I mean, by the sounds of things, you are maybe not happy with this ending, but considering the circumstances, you're pleased that like, he ended with a bit of a hopeful smile and maybe things will turn out okay. Like, but generally, John's... I mainly want to ask, how do you feel, actually, this is a question that's just come to mind, how do you feel when people boil down his role in the final season to two lines, which he only actually says like twice. I like, do you to... you're my queen. <laughs> yeah, like he says, you're my queen, like three times in the whole season. And he says, I don't want it like twice. And this is the problem with like memes and stuff like that, where you do get this picture that that's all he said. And it's funny that no one really picks up on the fact that the line actually that he says more often than anything else that I actually started to pick out because he said it a lot is, and more importantly, we need allies. He says that (laughs) a lot. (laughs) Oh, Um, bless his heart. I know, but um, yeah, so how do you feel about John and like the reaction to his ending? Because I have my own thoughts about the reaction to his ending. But I want to get yours first because I'm I'm obviously deeply attached to John because I'm deeply attached to the show, but I'm not deeply attached to any character personally. If you know what I mean, so go ahead. You have you have a storied history with him. So how did you feel about the end when you had to well, say goodbye to him?
1: I mean, we'll talk about that character note on Crywolf for sure. But <laughs> 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 but um, I was so it was so frustrating because he. I think that. With any character that you don't like, um, it's easy to be reductive about their place in a show. Um, 100%, I, you, and people did the same thing to Danny in a different way, um, were incredibly reductive about like all of the nuances and layers to her character and made her out to be a quote unquote like crazy bitch. Um, and that's obviously not fucking true. Um, in the same way that Jon Snow being just like a cardboard figure of a hero i don't think is true either um so it was really frustrating yeah to have uh, these like really reductive sort of opinions that were really i think just projection over like frustration that maybe things didn't happen the way that they expected or wanted them to which i also understand like it's hard for me to say outright like i'm so happy about jon snow's ending because what he had to do was horrible. And uh, loving John, I, I don't want that for him. Like, I didn't want for him to have to do that, and that's an awful thought. Um, like, it fucks me up when I think about him asking Tyrion if what he did was right, because I know that that's something that's going to sit with him for fucking ever. Like, that, that question um, just really fucks me up because, he'll never know. And he knew that. Eamon told him, you know, essentially like, you're going to have to make your choice and live with it forever as I have. And you may never know if it's the right thing to do. Um, But I think he, I think, I think he, he had to do it, you know, and it's, uh, it's awful, but it was also difficult because I remember at one point, there were people really going in on like John is a domestic abuser um, and like John is the poster boy for like intimate partner violence and it was frustrating because like I'm a survivor of of, of intimate partner violence and so it was like that's <laughs> that's not true like <laughs> you know like you know. this is not. Uh, like this is this is a lot of like hurt being projected onto this character as if this entire time he's been this like incredibly um abusive or toxic or, or problematic figure when in reality, you know, it hurt <laughs> like he he did a terrible thing and and it's fucking awful, but yeah, I don't know, it's a lot.
0: Well um there's a a great piece of writing that you've actually just reminded me of that um it is i was just double checking i uh, mentioned it before gretchen felker martin she wrote a great piece about the reaction to the sansa Ramsey stuff in season five specifically about unbound and unbroken um where she was saying i'm a survivor i mean I don't I still haven't quite fully formed my opinion on that scene because it's one of those where I completely understand people on both sides of the argument and the people who were involved have sort of said, Well, we kind of realized that we'd written it into a corner and we had to do something and you know, Sophie Turner was only seventeen when we were filming, so we had to work that into it as well. But Gretchen Felker Martin wrote this really great piece and she was sort of saying that I am a you know survivor of um sexual assault and she said personally I think that it's great to have stories of sexual assault survivors be so prominent and so she said you know I kind of understand the bitterness about it but she just sort of said also at the same time this happens and it still happens and it's happening right now and it's better to have a media landscape that can reflect this rather than a media landscape that only ever implies it or protects you from it. And so when it came down to the Jon Snow stuff at the end with Daenerys, I kind of understood the intimate partner violence thing and but it's one of those where like it's kind of a point raised that you can't really argue against because it's just a personal it's just a person's experience of it. And as much as you don't agree with it, it becomes very difficult to approach it in any kind of way and the discussion kind of gets frozen out and especially at the moment with the way that social media is essentially gamified like you can literally quantify in numbers of retweets and likes how right somebody is and how correct somebody is and when discussions are framed in that way it could be difficult to be a dissenting voice and someone who offers like a a different kind of narrative not in this heroic i am the lone fish who is right and they're all swimming the wrong way, kind of way, but just sort of in a. Could we just? Uh, could we just? What about this? And just in a quiet little polite way, and kind of kind of got like that with John in the final season. I mean, to be honest, I, just personally, I think that the show's greatest achievement beyond all the stuff that it did and all the moments and all of the ways that it changed television or whatever, I think that its greatest achievement were John and Daenerys's stories combined thematically and in the way that they're just just in their personalities and the way that they arrived because i don't really have an issue with daenerys's ending as such because i think she arrived to season eight fully formed there was no development after eight season eight episode one like once she decided to take on the night king and stuff that was that's the end of her i hate this word but arc Um, And then everything that happens in season eight to Daenerys is just stuff that's already there. And like she's a good person trying to do the right thing, but the closer and closer and closer she gets to her goal, the Iron Throne, the harder and harder it becomes for her to see right from wrong and to see fiction from reality. And it's a condition of the... (laughs) The circumstances that she'd had to endure and the things that she's had to do to overcome it. And I never really have an issue with. Because people's big contention with the Bells is that Daenerys would never do that to innocent people. And they are totally right that Daenerys would never do that to innocent people. But that's because she doesn't see the population of King's Landing as innocent people anymore. That they're, they're an enemy to her now because of everything that's happened to her. I mean, it's easy to forget because we don't see it on screen, but they are the same people who threw her out of the country when she was a baby, just because of her family name. And now she's back and it's the same people. It's the same population and they're an enemy. And as she said, you know, cities have liberated themselves for me. And what happens when the bells go up in King's Landing, there's no, Oh, Misa, please help. It's, Cersei, please help, because this woman is coming to kill us. And so they're an enemy. And so with Daenerys, I think that, I mean, it was bold and brave to go down that route because I know now for a fact that I didn't give the writers enough credit before the final season to go that deep into just like, not nihilism, because it ends hopefully, but this... Very kind of, if, if humanity is left to itself, it will go back to war. It will always go back to fighting. That's what I took out of the final season, and that's difficult to swallow. I think, but Daenerys being at the centre of it as like the the main, you know, the main, the most popular character, the the show's like one unquestionable icon. To have her have that theme channeled through her is brave like regardless of what. I don't care whether the books do it or not I just don't care even if, if, if the books are totally different and Daenerys is like a saint at the end I don't need my opinions about the final season validated by George R. R. Martin but that's
1: you know? not gonna happen it's gonna end very similarly I think the road to get yeah, there will be different,
0: maybe but... um but just kind of like going back to John as well I don't know if it's something you've had thoughts about too but the reaction to John's story in the final season got me thinking a lot about how we as a society and as consumers of media and stuff, how we view masculine heroes and about what we expect them to do and what they're supposed to do and what we're happy for them to do. And when i Think about John. I think just because you've seen Lord of the Rings and read it and stuff, you'll understand this comparison really easily. I think that a lot. I think in John, a lot of people see an Aragorn. He's a secret king, lying in wait. He's very good with the sword. He's good at leading people, and he, of course, he is the leader. He is, you know, he he is the Aragorn. Whereas the la- the last season, and it makes a lot of sense to me that. John's actually more like Frodo, where he is someone who takes on everybody else's burdens and carries the weight of the world on his shoulders because he feels like it's something that he has to do. And crowns and glory and all this stuff that people wanted for him, that people in the show wanted for him, they dragged him back from death because they couldn't accept that he'd gone. And all my poor John boy wanted to do in season six, seven and eight was have a good sleep and just stay and um, stay sleeping and not be dragged through and it's something that you can see in his reactions to being given certain titles and crowns and things like that because in season 5 episode 2 before he's killed he gets named lord commander of the night's watch and before he's like no sam no don't don't do it and then when he gets named lord commander he does give a little smile and he's like yeah, uh, uh, yeah. but then he's in a position of command for nine episodes after that or whatever, and it gets him killed. And then when he comes back, it's like, and then he's named King in the North, doesn't smile when he's named King in the North. He just stands and looks at everybody and he's like, yeah, okay, I'll take this position, but I'm not happy about it. And then within three episodes, he's given up the crown. That doesn't sound like <laughs> someone who wants to rule and wants to lead everybody and wants to, you know, and in the end, I think that, I mean, I called it at the start of the season. I said to, I said to my friends, the last shot of the whole show is going to be Jon Snow going out beyond the wall as, as a reflection of the very first shot of the very first episode where Night's Watch guys go out beyond the wall. I said, that's how they're going to do it. And when he left Ghost behind, I was even more convinced that that was what was going to happen. And there were so many people. God, do you remember in the aftermath of that episode, why didn't he pet the dog? Why didn't he pet the good dog? And I was thinking, he's going to pet the dog he's in gonna... two episodes time. Just calm down, and-, and John
1: left thinking that he was going to fucking die, like he went knowing that he was going to die, like I feel like he had really like in so many so many points in Game of Thrones is John so accepting his death and like almost very much like welcoming it like he's ready to die oh that guy's so many times risk. he wants yeah. to die, like he does not feel like he is a person with like so much worth like he he wants to die but but keeps finding it so like of course he he left like you know i don't know it it makes a lot of sense to me like i i didn't know how game of thrones was going to end and um i i had thrown things out of like wishes and dreams of how i wanted it to end um and there were definitely points that i um knew or felt were going to happen whatever but i did get this pin up Jon Snow tattoo before season eight. And it's um, John in his Night's Watch garb, uh, well, his cloak, um, but obviously he's naked otherwise. And um, his hair is down and curly and he's smirking. And I tweeted about it and said, like, I'm putting my season eight dreams out to the universe. Um, That, like, you know, Game of Thrones will end with Jon Snow, like, happy and free was like the big joke. And so when it happened, it was like, so fucking funny that i was like shit like john snow's back you know in in black and his hair's down and he's leaving and he like gives us that classic john smirk and and he's Mm -hmm. free i know i was like i did it (laughs) i predicted the end of game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) i obviously didn't but Hmm. but it is really frustrating to have um to have those things reduced so simply um you know, I I I don't know, it, it was really difficult. Um, yeah, it was difficult to see because people who who say, you know, Danny would never harm an innocent people are erasing uh, so much fucking context. Like there is so much context in this scenario that needs to be ignored in order to say Danny would never say this, or Danny would never do this so much. In the same way, I think that there's so much context that is ignored to say John would never do this. Um, you know, Danny, I don't think, wanted to do it. Danny felt she had to do it. Uh, John did not want to do it. John felt he had to do it. It was duty. It, there's like, and he, he cried begging her to show him that she wasn't going to do what else thought that she was going to do, you know? Like he really, up until the last moment, was crying and begging her to, to say that that was not a thing. Um, so mm-hmm. it's difficult because I think that these characters are much more complex than some people give them credit for. And it's not mm-hmm. a um, Danny or John scenario. Their, their history, um, well, their, their characters from the moment they met, since before they had met, are so intertwined. Um, they're in some ways so similar and in other ways so different that, yeah, I think context is incredibly important and a lot of people ignore that um, in favor of just saying like,
0: I wanted this to happen or I wanted that to happen and... Yeah. And because what I wanted to happen didn't happen, that means it's objectively bad. Yeah, um, but you could say the same yeah. with
1: Sansa. Like, you know, when yeah. you were saying that people were upset about um, about Sansa's assault, I know that was a bit ago, but... Um, mm. The, the interesting thing there as a non-book reader specifically isn't that people were upset that it happened. People were upset that it happened to Sansa. To
0: Sansa, yeah.
1: That was the very specific thing is this wasn't supposed to happen to Sansa. This was supposed to happen to Jane. So they're saying, mm. fuck Jane. This can't happen <laughs> to my favorite though. Like Jane, you know, fuck her. But like, she's not important to the story. But Sansa is, and this can't happen to somebody who's important to me. When the reality is that like, you know, a, a very large percentage of women you know have been assaulted. And, like, we, had, so I, at the last Con of Thrones, was on a panel about um, about sexual assault and and Game of Thrones. Um, I don't remember the specific title, but about sexual violence. And, like, I was very honest about also being a survivor of that and how much those scenes meant to me, not, not Sansa's assault specifically, but um, but that reaction of this wasn't supposed to happen to Sansa, I think is really minimizing to other survivors of sexual violence because you're saying, well, this can't happen to somebody that I love. And the reality is that it, it really does happen to, to people you love um, and and so many people are really quiet about it. But then in season fucking eight, to have that conversation with um, with Sansa and Sandor, who were two of my top three favorite characters, like. We've got John, Sansa, and Sandor. Those are my top three. It's a
0: solid top three, man, it's a solid it's, it's, top three.
1: They're the best, <laughs> but to have, you know, Sandor and Sansa and Sandor being like, and fucking rude because he obviously has a difficult time with vulnerability and Sansa being able to like forgive him and say like, you know, without without these experiences, I, I would still be a little bird, right? And there were so many people who were so pissed at this essentially saying, like, feeling like Sansa was saying, um, you know, without without these abuses, I, I would never be a real woman, which is bullshit, like, and they would say, like, well, this is uh, offensive to survivors of sexual assault, and I'd be like, I am a survivor of sexual violence, and it was incredible to have her say, like, not, I really needed to have these experiences um, to grow up, but more in the ability of, like, these things happened to me and now I am who I am, but I I didn't need those to happen, but they did. And I cannot look back on them and, and, you know, wonder what if, you know, it it was, it was really important to me to see that conversation. It was really meaningful, but there were so many people who were saying like, this is not okay and it is offensive to these people. And I was like, I am these people and it is not offensive.
0: (laughs) I think, um... With Sansa's story from beginning to end, I think you can, I, I, it's a weird comparison to suddenly jump to. Then again, the creators are both friends. But um, have you seen any of um, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? The, um... I have. So that show over time has... I'm <laughs> so
1: excited to see where this is going.
0: <laughs> well, over time, that show has become increasingly more mature when it comes to very sensitive and touchy subjects you know like in the first season it was very kind of south park like oh here's let's talk about cancer molestation underage drinking uh, racism let's all these hot button subjects let's make fun of them and poke fun of them in a way that's funny but not necessarily very mature and then you fast forward all the way through to seasons 13 and 14 they've stopped using a certain slur that they use for the first five seasons to refer to Carmen uh, the character Slur and they are having eloquent but still very true to character discussions about homosexuality bathroom bills all sorts of stuff like that and that the increasing kind of maturity and social awareness of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia this show of like how it's grown up I think with Sansa's story that's how you can track Game of Thrones growing up and how it decides to talk about sexual violence and how it decides to discuss people who are victims of trauma and how it changes their, or how their view on the world has been changed, how their outlook has been changed by the things that they've gone through. And there is a moment specifically on the map, which I count as a massive turning point for when Game of Thrones really started to maybe accept that, its depictions of sexual violence were perhaps a little gratuitous, unnecessarily so in the past, and that it hadn't really learned from them in the way that maybe the audiences had hoped that they learned from them. But then there's that moment in, I think it's the door in season six where Sansa goes to meet Littlefinger and she says, I can still feel what he did to me standing here right now. And then and she I says-
1: And I don't mean in my tender in my heart, it pain you pain pains She says, I so. can
0: literally feel it. And it was this idea that, um I don't know if you've seen all of Bojack Horseman.
1: It's my second favorite television show of all time.
0: Well, um, behind, <laughs> behind Game of Thrones, I wonder. Um yep. <laughs> But that bit in season six, where Diane is obsessed with this idea of good damage. And, And with Sansa, I feel like Sansa grows and is written just as well, in my opinion, in terms of her, the way that she grows up and develops as a person and as a character, she's written just as well as Diane. But I mean, people seem to think that David Benioff and Dan Weiss are idiots. Like when they talk about them now, they talk about them like David Benioff isn't an accomplished and published novelist who has worked with Spike Lee who has like done all of these movies and has a career for a reason, they see him as like, and he has been characterized by certain journalists who again, I won't name. They have been characterized as like dude bros who like stumbled across a fantasy series. Like they were jocks who just happened across some nerd books and were like, oh yeah, let's make a TV show because my dad's dead rich. Like, I think people forget sometimes that the people who write these characters understand them more than we do because they write every single word of what they say. And sometimes they write words that they don't say and they cut them out and they film scenes a hundred times and they hear these lines over and over and over again. You would never tell an artist or a singer that you knew their paintings and songs better than they did. So why people talk about TV and film as if they understand it better than the writers? Is something that has always irritated me a lot. And when you talk about projection, I understand it's a natural thing. But the discussions around Sansa, especially, and then Jamie in the last season as well, were so frustrating. <laughs> and like, there yeah, were, it was infuriating. I mean, there were elements of Jamie's story that I wasn't a huge fan of towards the end. I think that I spoke to um, our previous guest Cassie, where she sort of said that she liked the idea of Jamie going back to Cersei because it all made sense in her head. But she just said that she wished that Jamie hadn't slept with Brienne and then gone back to Cersei. She said she felt like if it had just been the Nighting scene, maybe an emotional discussion, and then Jamie going back to Cersei, she may have been more on board with it. But I often wonder the people who reacted negatively to Jamie's story and who seem to th- have a problem with John killing Daenerys as an example of misogynist writing, but then insist that the only way Jamie's art could end is if she if he killed Cersei <laughs> I know <laughs> killed his sister, lover, and unborn child. I often wonder people who react negatively to Jamie's ending, when uh victim of addiction or abuse goes back or has a relapse that they just pop out of a hole in the ground and think no don't relapse think about your character arc you have to end it this way and it's like you wouldn't do that to a person and so jamie goes through a relapse and he dies like that's the tragic end of his story the bells is a tragedy the bells is an episode of television where everybody loses, nobody is on the winning side, and that's why it's difficult.
1: So but- I have a sort of different understanding of Jamie's choice, um, which, like, it blew my mind to hear people upset about it when it happened, and feeling like Jamie left because he wanted to go and be with Cersei, because it felt very obvious to me that Jamie was going to try and stop Cersei and talk her out of it or fucking kill her, which is how I thought it was going to end. Um, and knew obviously that if he had told Brienne this, Brienne wouldn't have let him leave without her going. And I think he knew that it was gonna be a fucking death sentence, right? But I think he also knew that like, if anybody is going to be able to get close to Cersei, it's going to be me. Like she she would maybe see me, but also I might fucking die. Um, and so he, yeah, scorned Brienne, but not out of actually feeling that way, out of wanting to fucking old yeller her, right? Like get, uh, or is it, no, not old yeller, uh, uh, whatever. Just wanting her to, um, is it white? What? I don't know what I'm
0: I, I understand what you mean. Um, I totally understand. But out
1: of, out of making her stay behind because he wanted her to be safe. Um, and obviously, yeah, she would have followed him. Um, and and then I think once he saw Cersei, where like she she was Cersei as she actually is—a scared, vulnerable little girl oh, who you arms,
0: know. Oh my god, god it's stretched. so
1: fucking awful! Yeah. yeah, but I think that that like Jamie is of course going to revert to like, co- and also they're gonna fucking die, like to comforting her. Because even though they've been through what they've been through and it's so painful and it's so fucking toxic um, that that you know he it's his sister, that's his lover that's the person he's been closest to literally his entire life. of course he's gonna gonna immediately want to comfort her because she's never shown this level of like hurt and vulnerability and 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 of course that would be his response, but people being like. He's, he's, he just left because he was in love with Cersei more than Brienne. I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Like, <laughs> no. This and, is the and, problem with
0: reducing things. Again, I think this yeah. comes back to this idea that David Benioff and Dan Weiss are not capable of writing characters <laughs> as complex as George R. R. Martin was. And they're just, you know, they are idiots when it comes to character. And they are, and it's like, and this was a narrative that was spread by so many people whose. Have acknowledged in interviews that Game of Thrones changed their lives but then when it became lucrative (laughs) to diss Game of Thrones and to turn on it and to spread negative narratives about it oh god they jumped on that train so fucking fast man yeah and they're still on it to
1: a degree but it's fucking true um so it's tough because Dan and David like I'm the first to say that Dan and David signed up for this show thinking that they would have guidance through the end. Um, And they didn't. And that is a position that I don't know that they felt they would find themselves in. This is not something I've ever fucking talked to either of them about. Like, this isn't me being like, well, I actually know. Um, But I will say that like very directly, it is clear that Dan and David cared very fucking much for the show and cared very much about how it was received and cared very much that, that like, it, it was, it was as best as they could do. Um, and like, and I know that directly fucking from them. Like I've not only seen it in the way that they've treated like people I know on the show and the way that they've like worked, but also in the way that they've fucking interacted with me. Like they've been nothing but like kind and, and like, very uh very very hopeful that i've enjoyed like it's just it's it's obvious and apparent i think to the people around them um at least as far as i know and as far as i've experienced firsthand that they really fucking care but that it's um it's a situation that is difficult like literally no matter how game of thrones ended literally any 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 choice of ending uh, was never going to be re- like enjoyed by everyone i don't think that there's any way for it to have ended that would have appeased people no um it, it always was going to end up this way where there are some people you know there there are people who like it and there are people who fucking hate it and the people who fucking hate it are really loud um
0: yeah Always. and, and i
1: yeah and i think that like I don't know. There are people who I know that didn't like it, that haven't gone back and watched it again. And I'm excited for people to start going through and seeing it again and watching it without, like I said, the weight of the discourse, the, the, um, the stress of, 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 uh, you know, this is the last time I'm going to be seeing this new information for the first time, whatever, whatever. Um, because I think that we'll reach that final grief stage of acceptance. Because uh, it's it's wild, like I, so I, I was lucky enough, um, I watched season eight, and um, as it was airing, and I watched every episode twice at that point, and that was in, you know, April, May, right? And then I didn't watch it again until I was here in Glasgow in um, that July or August, and oh, wow. um, yeah. yeah, well, Kate, Dicky hadn't seen the last season, and she was like, "We need to watch it together." And I think we binged all of season eight in like two days. I was kind of nervous watching it again, of like, "What? What if I? Um, what if I'm not moved by this?" Because I got very defensive of it and being like, "It is good. You guys are being dicks," uh, and I understand why, but I'm also frustrated because, you know, I'm seeing my friends feel a bit upset about this. Um, and and whatever, but but I was a little nervous, and then yeah, it was it was just as moving as it was, if not more, with space um, that second time around. And like Kate fucking loved it, and was like, but she's away from the discourse, right? And so she was like, what the fuck are people upset about? This is incredible! Like this is beautiful. And I was like, I know, like <laughs> it's really lovely.
0: Well, um, I think it's a yeah. testament to the. To be honest, I think it's both a blessing and a curse to have a show like Game of Thrones and have it become what it did because i've never known people's brains to be so fried by something like just full on fried by it like just just the, the hyper awareness of just every minute thing like to the point where like they got gendry's bastard surname wrong in an episode and <laughs> two minutes after that scene like a thousand people were just like this is ridiculous ah! and I, I was thinking like you know and the coffee cup was a really big thing for me in the final season where i thought these people just want to hate this they don't actually yeah. care. one of the most famous and funny moments in whole of cinema history is the stormtrooper clunking his head off the doorframe in star wars and every single time that George Lucas has done his numerous edits of that movie. He has kept that in because everybody loves it and they all yeah. find it funny. But in this immersive, amazing, futuristic, sci-fi, fantasy movie, something like that can happen. Mm-hmm. When the coffee cup comes up in Game of Thrones, it's this, oh, clearly they just don't care. They just don't. They're so sloppy on the details. This is awful. And here's the proof. <laughs> and like... <laughs> David Nutter is a director who wants lots of shots and lots of coverage. If you've watched like the back behind the scenes and stuff is, and I've, I've just watched an episode of his, that he did for band of brothers and it's the same. And you can tell that he loves lots of quick shots, not like a, like a Baz Luhrmann level, but like he likes quick edits and lots of coverage of lots of different angles and, all that kind of stuff and he just said we we looked at it a thousand times and because we had so many different shots and we were so focused on john and um christopher highview in the front that we just didn't notice the coffee in the back and then we're like and then there were all these people like who insist that still to this day even though there isn't a starbucks within a hundred miles of that set they're like it's a starbucks it was an advert for starbucks and there are also still people to this day that insist that they cut it off early so they could go and do a Star Wars project. It's, and, like, and then
1: it's, it's, it's insane. It's, the it's, stats um,
0: don't add up. The facts don't. do not add up. Like They announced the decision to shorten the final two seasons in 2016, which means that they made that decision in 2015. That was before The Force Awakens even came out. And all of these decisions about future trilogies or whatever were even made. And, like, they, I mean, from reading between the lines of that Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon book by James Hibbard, it sounds like it was getting harder and harder and more expensive to keep all of the cast together. It, that's what it sounds like, that the number that they were being paid per episode was going up and up and up and up. And they were getting lucrative offers from, like, Hollywood and stuff like that. So they thought, right, we can't keep shelling. This is how Friends ended up. Because Friends, the last season is so much shorter than all of the rest because it just got so expensive to pay everybody. And as the production gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, I think people have this idea that HBO said that they could have all of the money in the world. And so why didn't they just pay, use all of the money in the world? To... And it's like, no, it's not just this bottomless pit of money that you can keep going back to. And like again, from a journalist who I will not name, and I have a very complex relationship with. And it's like, they tweeted a couple of days ago, like just woke up from a dream where Game of Thrones paused at the point where George R. R. Martin did the time jump. And I'm, and wasn't that great. And wouldn't we all have been so happy if they'd done that? And it's like, these are real people. You're telling them to put their lives on hold for yeah. five years just to do a thing the way that you want it. And it's like which is why the I'm so grateful that this thing even exists. I, I don't care enough to get mad about how, I don't I mean, I don't really care about TV and, I care about TV and entertainment so much, but not to the point where like, I'm mad about it for months afterwards and years afterwards that it is still gonna be like and making things up to make yourself feel better about the way you felt. And there are two big things missing, I think. I don't know if you agree. There are two big things missing from the discussion around the final season, which is that, There are too many people saying, how dare they do that? And not enough people saying, why did they do that? Because then that's a more intriguing line of questioning. And the other thing that I feel like is missing is just people needing to feel validated by objectivity instead of just saying, you know what? I really believe that Daenerys was going to be a good person. And I don't like the ending because... It, I felt like that's not what I wanted for her. And so I, I didn't like the ending. It's fine to have subjective opinions about plot. Just say that. Just, uh, but again, there needs to be this idea that like, no, it wasn't that I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't like what they did with Daenerys. It was that what they did with Daenerys was bad.
1: Yeah, that it was and wrong.
0: <laughs> that it was wrong and that it was all right propaganda. And that it was punishing a woman for wanting to be powerful and that it was also and it was like and you can read it that way i think but but also you know there were people who were saying that it was like anti-feminist to make brienne cry and i'm like are women (laughs) not allowed to cry on television anymore like are women not allowed to have feelings are they only allowed to be like oh my god i
1: forgot about that oh god i was so pissed that like that that was such a thing for a minute and it made me so angry Because it was like, well, you like it's misogynistic for you to not think that Brienne wouldn't cry. Like, just because she's big and tough and strong doesn't mean she wouldn't cry. And it's okay for her to be both of those things in tandem.
0: And that's what, to be honest, that about. I mean, I remember there's a there's a huge focus shift. You can see if you read the Rotten Tomatoes uh, little blurb summation things. First six seasons, it's just like, um, you know, Game of Thrones is bloody and it's producing great action television for adults. And, no, oh, isn't this amazing? It's immersive, blah, 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 blah. And then season seven, it's like, st- uh, Game of Thrones roars back with strong storytelling, particularly for the female characters. And I'm like, okay. And then in the final season, it says, Game of Thrones short changes its female characters in a mad dash to the finish. And I'm just sat there thinking, short changes its female characters. Did you not see what Arya did and where Sansa ends up and where Brienne ends up and I'm just- The, a- last,
1: the last words spoken on Game of Thrones are the queen in the north.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, like, and I felt so sad because the long night, what really sealed it for me, coming to it a few months afterwards was something I didn't see at the time, but now do. That is Aya's reawakening from like this robot assassin child to like human being who has feelings again and it happens as there's a process across the course of the whole episode where Aya slowly rediscovers her feelings and rediscovers life and rediscovers what it is to be human just in time to kill the one thing that wants to end humanity she gives humanity a second chance. And what's so tragic about the bells is that humanity wastes that second chance and she's on the floor while it happens and while it all falls down around her. But when she sleeps with Gendry, this moment that we'd all been waiting for, her expression afterwards is someone who doesn't care. She's just had sex for the first time. So like huge emotional moment in her life, a big awakening and she is just lay there with a thousand yards there because she's forgotten how to feel. She's just been so broken down by worshipping death and by all the trauma that she's suffered from like, I mean, we've been re-watching season one. She suffers so much trauma from like episode three onwards from all, all this death and all of her friends running, losing around her and like a dad dying, Syrio dying, all of this horrible stuff that happens to her. And then over the course of the long night, she learns how to be a human again and she learns how to feel and she experiences emotions that she hasn't experienced in such a long time. Like where there's a moment where she gets her head whacked against a wall by the zombies. And that's a moment where, and there is a reason why the camera sticks with her on the floor and she looks up into the face of death, this thing that she's been worshiping for three seasons up to this point like uh, trying to become the master of it or whatever. And then she sees what it is and she's, she is terrified. She's so scared. And then it goes a little bit further and she's in the library and she stabs the white up the throat. Yeah. And she just lays it peacefully to rest. And I mean, I know she has to be quiet, but if you look at her face, she's really pained and it's like, Jesus, this was a person once. And then when Beric dies, and at the same moment she finds Melisandra, and it's like she finally realizes that she has to be a person again and she has to have feelings and she has to use everything that makes somebody human to overcome death. And isn't that just that? I mean, there were loads of possible candidates to kill the night King that I would have been happy with, but thinking about it in retrospect, Arya was like, because a night of the seven kingdoms and the long night formed this like beautiful one, two punch where a Knight of the Seven Kingdoms is all about how memory makes us human. And then episode three is all about humanity coming together to fight what wants to defeat it. And it gives it, and it, the episode ends on this really beautiful cliffhanger that humans are now left with because there's a reason again, why it ends on Melisandre fading away. And that is because magic is leaving the universe again. It's a parallel from when the first season, like magic starts to disappear from the universe and fade away. Humans are now left without guidance. That's the... Like, they've been given a second chance and they have a lot of potential. Arya has saved humanity and given them a new dawn. What are they going to do with it? And the tragedy of the bells is that Arya, like I said, is on the ground when her second chance that she gets humanity literally crumbles around her in fire and ash. And to, for people to look at all that and just decide that female characters were short-changed and, yeah, it just... It- yeah, it's reductive, so, but.
1: It is. And I think that, like, is a really complex character that people project a lot of shit onto, especially when you consider Arya versus Sansa, of, like, Arya being the very beloved child, Sansa being the one who um, is annoying because she's <laughs> definitely the more feminine of them, yeah, and the more, like, gentle, and, and Arya's clearly the more uh, masculine of the two. But that scene with Arya and Gendry after they've had sex, like, I have much different feelings about it. Oh, cool. Where, like, yeah, so she's clearly like, um, you know, uh, they're laying in bed together, and she's looking off, and it's a moment. So I actually tweeted about this, um, and and pulled up screen caps of it because I said, if you have any doubts about the Arya and Gendry scene and what it meant, because people were very much like, she regrets it, and like this wasn't even a good thing, whatever, oh, I whatever. Say or or, or like she she doesn't even it, have right. any feelings about this in the same way. But I said, if you have any doubts about the Arya and Gendry scene and what it meant. Um, I don't think the lyric timing is coincidental. And so when they have that shot of, because Uh, of course the song is Jenny of Old Stones, when they show Arya in bed with Gendry, the lyric is, um, it spun away all her sorrow and pain and she never wanted to leave. So there's like, I have this much different read about it of like Arya, has spent all of this time, you know, you know, attempting in some way, even if not fully, of course, uh, becoming no one and becoming kind of like this small robotic psycho killer, uh, thanks to a surplus of childhood trauma. But for the the first time, um, she's now... In a, in a way that she literally never thought would happen again because she thought her entire fucking family was dead. And you see that she thought that when Hot Pie tells her about John and she doesn't even know about Sansa her eyes
0: go, and yeah. freaks
1: out, right. But now if you consider this, she's just slept with Gendry um, and she made that decision uh, to have this like vulnerable, tender moment, even if it was aggressive, sometimes those things are. But now, Aria suddenly is under a roof with a man that she, you know, we don't know, you know, whether she loves him, whatever, but clearly this is someone who has seen her throughout a, a, a variety of times and has supported her and cared for her that she definitely respects and is definitely at a crush on for some time because oh, yeah. you saw those lingering <laughs> shots of those abs, and who can blame her? Joe is a dreamboat and he's wonderful. Um, <laughs> So she's, she's laying in bed next to Gendry and, and the biggest thing for me is that she's under a roof with her siblings. Like she's, mm. she's in Winterfell with her fucking siblings who she thought they were all dead. This is a literal sc- like scenario that she never thought would happen and, and she knows that tomorrow is the day that it could all be taken away from her immediately again. And so that has to be like the weight of that to be laying in bed and realize that you're living this dream that you you kept secret because you never thought was possible. Yet it's about to be taken away so quickly again, already, and you've just gotten there. The weight of that is like to me incredible, indescribable, right? To know that this is fleeting.
0: Much prefer that reading. I much prefer that (laughs) reading to mine. Um, Because then that could be her decision to sleep with Gendry in the previous episode could be the moment where things kind of spark to life again for her. The
1: potential for it, because
0: she's,
1: you know, I don't know that Arya ever stopped to consider the potential that she could be like safe and warm and happy and loved again. And then yeah, here she is with her siblings who have like meant the world to her, even Sansa who they fought, you know, but like it's it's this wild moment and then to know that they're all going to bed thinking that this is going to potentially be the last time that they've seen each other and they mm. didn't even know that they were all still alive. And so she she does this and has it and then pushes it away again because she knows that she has this mission, right? She's gonna fucking kill Cersei. But it's the moment with Sandor when she uses his name for the first time and doesn't just call no, him. I've a heard you talk hound. about this before. <laughs> like it really fucks me up, but like. That's really the moment where I think she she chooses life because she's still this like cold-hearted little killer you know thanks to thanks to trauma and yeah. and that's the moment when he holds her and says like if you follow me like this is it and he he makes it clear that he doesn't want that for her you know of course he doesn't and she chooses to go back and thanks him for for like he was a father figure, you know? And he taught her so many lessons. And in the end, he taught her this big lesson of like, sometimes life is worth living and revenge isn't fucking everything. And look how it's, you know, changed him. And he knew that he was about to die for this. Like, it's just so much um, that like, yeah, that moment of Arya just like staring off is, is so much more intense to me in a much different way. And so the reading on that was was a bit difficult because I just think that like, you know, could you imagine being in that position? It it, it has to be I, I don't know, yeah. indescribable.
0: I mean, thankfully, I don't think we'll ever face a zombie horde in our lifetime. Um
1: <laughs> I mean 2020 has been wild. <laughs> I wouldn't be 2021
0: could have bigger surprises. Than <laughs> <right>. Um, <laughs> huh? um yeah, I, just as um maybe like a final thing because I you know appreciate we have evenings to have. Um, <laughs> I want to know your thoughts on uh, Bran. And his, <laughs> and his ending. Um,
1: oh, good King Bran.
0: Because who 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 has a better story than uh, Bran the Broken? <laughs> Again, another line that people take in really bad faith. It's like
1: yeah, it's it is ableist and and like frustrating, sure, but like. I know they would have done
0: that <laughs> they would have done that um just, i think it's just it's one of those again it's another example of like with other tv shows if i uh, just feel like if they felt more goodwill towards it it's lines like that and the way that people have reacted to it where you can tell that they don't want to engage they stopped wanting to engage like who has a better story than brand the broken is not a question that is supposed to be answered with well, John has a better story than Brad. No, it's it's about symbolism, and if it was another yeah. show, you would try to engage with that symbolism. Try to do it now, and
1: and even yeah. as a person who like I love John so much, I'm so I I thought when I thought about how Game of Thrones was going to end, I thought truly that Danny was. I thought that she was going to get pregnant. I thought that she was going to same. have a baby. yeah, same. I thought she might die in childbirth. And then I thought the show was going to end with John being forced to sit on the throne as a single father, like with what was technically, you know, a, a bastard. And that was my nightmare is like, John is I'm sure going to find happiness in this um, or like hope in this but it's more pain for him. And, and it's everything he fucking didn't want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really afraid that that's what was going to happen. And so when it became clear that like, Danny was not going to have a baby, um, but like that glimmer of hope was always there, it was difficult. But like, um, I, I was honestly, when, when it was Brand that was called out, I like laughed and was like, this is wild. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, well, yeah, obviously. Like, same, this same makes mentioned. sense because of, I mean, like, so many reasons it makes sense. But, like, Bran is a figurehead. He's he's not doing shit. Like, he is there to be the sort of, like, encyclopedia to guide them, but he's now appointed a whole crew of people who are going to be able to make decisions and lead as a group. Like, it's getting rid of the ego because the fucking throne has always been the problem whenever people ask like who do you want to sit on the throne i would say i don't want there to be a throne nobody I want the throne to yeah. be gone i want nobody on the throne who do i think i think it's gonna fucking be john and i'm annoyed at it like that was always my response is like you know i, I don't want there to be a throne but if there is i'm nervous it's going to be john because i don't want that for him like, he very clearly does not want that for him. And he's fucking suffered a lot. Like, I
0: can't believe people wanted anyone to sit on the throne because everyone who's ever sat on the Iron Throne in <laughs> the Game of Thrones has died.
1: It's the fucking ring. Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> get it out of here. <laughs> Throw it in the flames. Um, yeah, it was, it's infuriating. Um, but what's she going to do? And it's wild, like, reading the book for the first time. So I'm only about 200 pages in. Um, and I've been recording myself reading it. And so I need to edit those and put them on YouTube because it's been really fun. But there are so fucking many references that, like, it just makes it obvious that Brand, like, it, it is. I, I will be able to finish a full sentence, but this gets me so wildly worked up. Like, it is so obvious that Brand is going to be king. Like, it makes so much sense, and there are so many nods to this. I feel like where you can tell George is writing this, being like, "eh, eh, yeah," like. But it's really, really funny to read it and be like,
0: it was in front of our faces the whole time. It's even in, I mean, I again, I have had the benefit of watching season one for the first time since season eight um, came to a close. And there are scenes in season one where I am just like, it is literally telling you right now that Bran is gonna be the the leader of these kingdoms at the end. There is a whole scene that happens in the background, kind of, of a scene in like episode five or four or something. It's episode five, it is. It's the wolf and the lion. Where Maester Luwin is teaching Bran all of the houses, all of their mottos, all of their castles, all of their locations, all of the kingdoms and all of the regions. And it's just like, mm-hmm, it's right there. Like, it's my God, it is right there. And it's the same with Daenerys, too, where, like, I mean, I don't, I'm not one of these people who's like, look at all these cherry-picked incidents I've got that prove that Daenerys was a good or bad person or whatever. Yeah. But there is a moment where Viserys is about to be killed, and Dave and Benioff and Dan Weiss maybe didn't do themselves many favours in the... um After the episode thing, where they said, "Well, it was obvious from the moment that Viserys was killed because Daenerys was very cold about it and whatever," like people are gonna
1: done those.
0: Yeah, people. (laughs) Yeah, people are gonna stick on those. Um, But it's the moment before where she decides, "Yes, let's do this. Let's kill him." And that's the moment where she chooses violence for the first time, and that seed is planted. And then in the next episode, that wine cellar is attached to her horse and she drags him naked for miles and miles and miles until he dies. And it's just that seed growing ever so slightly. And and, And it's not a condemnation of Daenerys. It is a condemnation of everything around her that makes violence the only answer. And every single time she overcomes anything in the show, it is through fire. And, well, and it is she's through told blood. By the
1: people around her, Darian Harris this. tells yeah. her. He tells her. Uh, Elena tells her. You know, like yeah. she's told consistently by her advisors. You're a dragon, so be a dragon. And and what he, Daria, What calls her a conqueror? Right? I think like yeah. Like you weren't made to sit on an iron chair
0: in a palace or something like that. You you're a conqueror, Daenerys. And yeah, yeah.
1: like she's told consistently to be a dragon, to go in uh, fucking, like, ready to go. And so when she realizes, like, because I, so one of the clips I watched before we decided to talk, um, or before we met up, was um, these scenes with Danny and John, because I had a feeling that we would be talking about it a little bit. Mm. Um, And, um, you know, just this understanding that, like, Danny was right when she said, you know, if people find out who you are, they'll never they'll never accept me and Dead it's right. true like it's it's 100% true because john has consistently been in that position of not wanting to lead but being chosen <laughs> to lead because he's a good leader and because the people love him and she knew that and it was fucking true he had the birthright for it. Like, he was the person that people loved in Westeros. Like, he he fucking, like, is the one who organized... Like, he was the prince who was promised. He was not solely responsible for the death of the Night King, but he is the reason that everybody came together to do it. And it wouldn't have fucking happened without him. Those motherfuckers would all be dead. It was him.
0: But, like... He's, he's a diplomat. He is.
1: That's like, he's, he's incredible, but, like, he doesn't fucking want to do it. But Danny knew that no matter how many times he said i don't want it i'm not going to do it that he would be forced to do it and danny would never be accepted so she said she told him the only way that we can do this is together like if you are you know like if we are together people will accept me by way of you like by proxy of our relationship like that is the way that we can do this and he says at one point i don't he says something like um you know, we can, we can still, you know, we can still rule, like, we can still be happy. And she pulls away and she's like, yeah, and I just told you how. Like, the only way we can do this is if we are together and you do not fucking tell anyone who you are. Like, (laughs) Brandon, Sam, no, that's too many people. Like, (laughs) like, if we keep this to ourselves, we can do it. But otherwise, you know, she said, like, I don't have love here. I only have fear. Like, this is, this is, you know we have to we have to do this if if that's the end game, and when he pulls away, she says, "Fine, let it be fear." She knows she has one of two options. she knows the only option for love is through John she, she had to choose fear, and she's not fucking wrong. She is not wrong because no, the people would never accept her willingly as queen unless they were fucking terrified of her.
0: Yeah, pretty much. So that's
1: how I feel about season eight.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I was going to say my little closing thoughts about Daenerys as well is that (laughs) Game of Thrones is full of people who go from one place to another and don't adjust to the other place. Ned going south, Littlefinger coming north. Like, they're just not the same when they're not in their usual surroundings and they're not as powerful and they make silly decisions. And Daenerys coming from Essos to Westeros is just another one of those as far as i'm concerned like
1: and people who do terrible things in search of power in the form of the throne like cersei obviously blew up the sept and (laughs) fucking everyone in it but we accept not that we accepted it but like that was understandable because cersei is quote unquote evil which i also don't fucking agree with she's a very complex character but you know we we do we come to expect that from her and it's more difficult to accept that sort of move from daenerys who who is beloved and powerful and has, um, you know, done wonderful things, which is true. Um, and Cersei, you know, maybe hasn't done that, but Cersei's lived a much different life. Um, one that I would say is, is in some ways, I mean, it's, it was incre- incredibly difficult. Um, she didn't necessarily live a simple, easy life. Um, in some ways, yes. In in many ways, no. So I don't know. It's all complex, and I think that the yeah, the context is important, but often lost.
0: And I think that people would have a much better job of would, would do much better to like I say, just ask why instead of and you like you say, there are people who just went no, don't like it, not watching it again, it sucks. <laughs> and I, I even had somebody tell me, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, that like I even had somebody come to me in the aftermath of season eight and say the point of endings isn't to reevaluate the story. And I kind of sat there frozen in my seat and I went, no, the point of endings is to reevaluate the story. So you can look at the whole thing as a whole piece, not, you know, with all of the information with all of the context. And I think if you, if you're delivering an ending to some people like that, then, you know, and, I also think that out there somewhere in the universe, there is a parallel universe where they went for the safe ending, where the Night King was the final boss, and Cersei succumbed to not helping out the North, and Daenerys ascended a throne, and she had a baby, and it ended like how to train your dragon three. And just as many people are annoyed, because they are in that parallel universe right now, they are saying, but that's not Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones was always anti-war, it was always anti-monarchy. Now we're glorifying that? Well, that's Mm -hmm. not, so I think- But
1: really, what is the point of the story if that's the ending? Exactly. Because that's just saying, well, the throne has always led people to do awful things and has like not these guys but not these guys (laughs) (laughs) these are these are cool ones so this is fine maybe we finally got it right but who knows what the fuck is going to happen with the next generation that's for a different series you know like nothing changes with that there's no there's no you know lesson about that power and the danger of that power
0: yeah, this has been awesome. I just want to say thanks to Sam and everybody listening would obviously want to say that too. Um, thank you for bawling and shouting and cheering at a television screen for three years while we watched you and um, for, you know, the Crywolf pod, which I will leave links to in the show notes and everything like that. And for two and a half hours worth of uh, Game of Thrones discussion.
1: Oh, thank you. That's honestly so kind of, um, and yes, yeah, that's overwhelmingly kind. And I, it's honestly like such a treat. Um, I told you I've been kind of like out of the mix of like thinking about or talking about Game of Thrones for a while. And it's so much fun. I, I honestly feel like we could, we could talk about this for a thousand years. Um, oh gotcha.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a testament to the show. It really is. um yeah. It's probably the only show I could talk about because it's the only show I get this about. Like, I feel it. You I know? get,
1: I get like this or... a bit about BoJack. But so yeah, <clears throat> that's my big plug. Is anybody who loves Game of Thrones should watch BoJack Horseman.
0: Oh, um, gotcha. And just
1: know that Sandor is BoJack, and it's fine.
0: <laughs> yes. No. I, you know, I never made that comparison, but that is a perfect, yeah, perfect little um, comparison. <laughs>